Dr. David Perlmutter here. Welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. I'm sure the name Dave Asprey is certainly well known to many of you. Uh, he's written some great books. We'll talk about them in just a minute. Let me tell you a little bit more about him because we're going to be looking at his new book today. Uh, as many of you know, he is the founder and CEO of Bulletproof 360, which is a leading edge food, beverage, and content company. And he's also the creator of the widely popular Bulletproof Coffee that we, we see everywhere. He's a two-time New York Times bestselling science author, host of the award-winning podcast Bulletproof Radio, and he's been seen on The Today Show, CNN, Dr. Oz. He's been featured in The New York Times and, and many more media venues. Over the past couple of decades, Dave has worked with many world-renowned doctors and researchers and scientists really around the world in an attempt to uncover the latest, most innovative methods for enhancing both mental as well as physical performance and really, in his case, taking control of his own biology. We call this uh, these days biohacking and he is certainly uh, one who started this kind of understanding or this mentality of being able to take control of your own a destiny in this way. He is, as mentioned, a best-selling author of the book Headstrong and also the Bulletproof Diet, which describes his techniques that he has discovered for becoming happier, healthier, smarter, and this has been really uh, extracted from the wisdom of many of the world-class thought leaders uh, and mavericks of science that he, uh, Dave, has had the opportunity to interview uh, on his very popular podcast. Uh, when he started the Bulletproof Radio podcast more than now five years ago, uh, he sought out uh, various thought leaders and influencers in a very wide array of disciplines from uh, people involved in laboratory biochemistry to business titans, uh, even people involved in meditation. And these are people that he uh, feels are involved in really changing uh, the destiny of the planet. Uh, he believes that these are people who've uh, really been influencers in their particular areas of study and uh, are in fact pioneering new fields as well. What Dave wanted to know was what did these mavericks, if you will, have in common? What mattered most to them and what makes them so successful in the work that they do? And so uh, this is really under, was the underscore for what Dave was doing in his uh, wide-reaching blog. And he began asking uh, each of these individuals, what are your top three recommendations for people who really want to make it, for people who really want to uh, succeed? And ultimately, he's been able to comb through uh, these recordings and begin to see patterns emerge and common threads amongst these leaders. And he found that the wisdom that he was able to glean from these uh, interviews of these very uh, influential and successful individuals uh, was able to be distilled into three areas, body, mind, and spirit. And that uh, understanding uh, is what goes into his new book, uh, which is called Game Changers, um, What Leaders, Innovators, and Mavericks Do to Win at Life. And this is really a book that represents the culmination of Dave Asprey's years-long uh, endeavor to learn about these uh, ideas and to ultimately put this information together 
by even performing a statistical analysis of these conversations and uh, as such offer up a 36 uh, science back high performance uh, uh, listing of what he calls the laws that are a virtual playbook as he describes it for how to become not only more successful but also uh, you know our goals of being healthier and happier so I'm very delighted to welcome Dave Asprey on our program today. Hi, Dave. How are you? David, it's a great pleasure to see you. I'm doing great. Good. Nice to see you again. Uh, I was, uh, we were talking before we began recording about the great time we had connecting over the summer. And I actually have a picture and I'll, I'll show it right now. Uh, <laughs> this is when you got to, we got to visit your town. Uh, in our boat and had uh, the opportunity to spend some time with you and as on the far side that's Jeff Bland and then also Dale Bredesen and his wife Aida Bredesen so really what a great time we had this summer got a lot of great conversation it's always interesting uh, people hear us talking on your podcast uh, but we actually know each other <laughs> and support each other's work uh, and you know have dinner together and things like that and, and it's it's cool that you're showing the photo to everyone uh, because those kind of relationships, I think, are helping to take everyone's perspective on on what healing looks like on on what the future of our health can look like. Uh, just like we're we're working hard behind the scenes on it. So well, I love it you know, sharing. it's interesting because it really and it segues nicely to your book about the absolute importance of connection and yeah. in fa in person type of connection. I mean, you know, truthfully, everybody knows or should know that you and I met virtually. I did your podcast, you did my podcast yeah. and all that. But I just found it, as my wife did, just such a special time to connect with you and your children and your wife and spend some time at your home this summer. It just, it, it was absolutely a game changer for us in many ways, uh, well beyond just our relationship. So, um, you know, and, and I learned um, a lot about Dave Asprey. I mean, it's one thing to look at the media, Dave Asprey, and the Bulletproof uh, you know, podcasts and Bulletproof Coffee and all that. That's all great. But to have uh, the ability to spend, the opportunity to spend some time with you and get to know uh, who you are as a person was so uh, special for both my wife and me. So, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a very, very positive experience in our lives. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, you're, you're so welcome. I've, I've learned over the past, really oh, since I started Bulletproof, there's a, a small number of people who are just genuinely helping. Uh, and, and you're one of those people. Well, thank um, you. And it, every time I've ever seen you meet someone, you just always come in, how can I help? And there's a, a group of people working to change health and nutrition and food who will help each other. And there's other groups of people who are critics and skeptics and you know, people who will take things and whatever else, but they never rise. Uh, like like they, they kinda, they're self-limiting. Uh, so it's also really important uh, for people like us to get to spend some quality time together. Uh, and, and so it, it nourishes us. And it, it is one of the laws in Game Changers it is around the value of community. And, and I, I mean, I studied 450 people, including you, to figure out what makes you tick. <laughs> and then looked at what doesn't make just one of you tick, but what makes everybody tick? What are the priorities? And from there, what are the lessons? What are the laws we can learn? And so many of them, you already live in your life, and it shows because you, you walk around in a, in a state of happiness 
and it and it's not a manufactured thing. Some people can put on a space for social media and then they put down their phone and you know life sucks and all that. But no, <laughs> you you generally walk around in service and and in a sense of happiness and you built a community around yourself and you built a relationship around yourself. Um, I interviewed Eric Kandel, uh, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, recently on Bulletproof Radio. And when I asked him his three most important pieces of advice uh, for people, he thought about it for a little while and he's in his 90s and, and still actively working in New York. And he goes, you know, rule number one, have a good wife. <laughs> and it was funny because he, he put the relationship or put the work into his relationship. And he said that was one of the reasons he could do what he did and how he be, turned out to be who he was. And I look at the way you manage your relationship uh, in your family and your relationships just with the world around you. And I, I think there's a lot to a lot we can all learn from that. So it, it, you're, you're walking the talk. Well, uh, it, uh, you know, I guess it stems from gratitude. And, you know, I had this talk with actually our son last night. We we're talking because he and I just finished. We just submitted a manuscript for a book called Brainwash about how we offload uh, from a lot of the negative influences in modern society, you know, designed really to take advantage of our brains and re reestablish our connection with those parts of the brain that that allow us to see things in a positive way, to to exercise empathy, to feel empathy and compassion, and really think about the consequences of our actions moving forward, as opposed to acting impulsively, a more of an amygdala-based kind of response. Um, but having said that, here you have this incredible repository of information from 450 interviews from some really incredibly uh, interesting and accomplished individuals. And from that, I, your book talks about, you, you, you really distill everything down to the three areas of body, mind, and spirit. And you developed uh, in the book these uh, 36 laws. And I think for our viewers, I'd like to go through as many of, this, of these laws as we can really focusing on those that are most prescriptive I mean, so people can get the most out of them. And um, let's, you know, we'll start wherever you want. And what do you think would be perhaps on the top of the list? Well, one that there are two laws in here that really stand out. And when I asked all of these people, what matters most, three most important things, the number one answer statistically, so I actually hired a statistician to I go through it. all these it's numbers so with me. Great. <laughs> Number one was food. These people, no matter if they worked in medicine or nutrition or Navy SEALs, it didn't matter. 76% of the time, nutrition came up as one of the top three answers. And uh, what that means is that if you are eating the wrong stuff, you simply will not achieve your mission. And what that came down to in the book was a little one, one rule that you'll particularly appreciate is feed the little bastards in your gut. <laughs> and who knew this it, it's what well, you did <laughs> but it, it's this idea that the, the little bacteria in your gut they will work for you or against you they will hack your system or or they will work to give you neurotransmitters and short-chain fatty acids but it's up to you and there's some things you can do and, and this is far from a diet book i mean game, game changers is a list of laws so you can prioritize where you want to go first to get the most return on the energy you put into being a better human but it turns out if you follow that that rule Feed your gut bacteria, which means eating the right amounts of vegetables, not eating grains, stuff that you and I are both fully on uh, in line about, that that matters. Not just that you can look a certain way, not just for your health, but because if you want to be a game changer, if you want to achieve your mission, if you're not doing that right, 
you're taking the foundation out. And so building uh, 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 an epic life on a shaky foundation is a lot of work and you're much more likely to fail. Um, another well, one. Let me just, go ahead. I, I yeah. want to hold you right there for just a moment. Building your epic life. And I, that sounds great. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that our, our viewers are really taken to that notion that each and every one of you viewers can be building your epic life. And that's what we're learning about today. Go ahead, Dave. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, oh thank you, uh, David. The, I, I talked with Zen masters, uh, both uh, ones who are current Zen masters and a Zen master who, who fell from the heights of, of uh, his being one of 66 ordained high-level Zen masters who had an affair and was public about it and uh, basically kind of fell from grace and had to work his way back. Um, these are, are people who are working really hard on uh, on getting to levels of of achievement, not to prove something to other people, but because it's what their mission is. It's why they're here. And I feel like everyone has a reason for being here, but it's so it's so hard to to work on that uh, when your biology isn't working. Because I weighed three hundred pounds, uh, because I was having cognitive dysfunction and autoimmune issues and gut problems, uh, no matter what I did. Uh, as a young man, I, I I dealt with all that and I overcame it. And I remember just how easy it was to act like a jerk. And I have learned through writing Game Changers, through starting Bulletproof, through interviewing these luminaries, I fundamentally believe we're wired to be nice to each other. It, it is built into our hardware, but no one's going to be nice to, to other people if you feel like you're starving all the time. And one of the rules that comes out in the book is eat like your grandma, not a caveman. And it may be your great grandmother for a lot of us, but there are different foods that work differently for different people. And there are some basic rules like don't eat fake fats and processed foods and, and things like that. But if you look at what your ancestors ate and you try that in your diet, you may find that it works really well for you, but it doesn't work for someone else, even someone else you're married to because their ancestors ate different things. Uh, so we still stay within the, the eating a clean diet, eating a larger amounts of the right fats, eating lots of vegetables. But if you're eating vegetables that your people didn't eat 100 or 200 or 1,000 years ago, they just might not be very compatible with your system. And so by playing around with that and understanding- When you say your system, okay. uh, are you talking yeah. about your genome? Are you talking about your microbiome? What is it in, in your physiology that may be at odds with the foods you're eating? Uh, this is one of the most interesting new areas of research uh, that I've come across, and I'm guessing you've probably read some of the same papers. So there's definitely something that happens in your gut bacteria, and we inherit some of those from our parents, but those change over the course of 24 hours, and you can take probiotics, you can walk in the forest, and you can do things like that uh, that will change your bacteria over time depending on what you're eating. Um, however, there is talk between those bacteria and the mitochondria in your cells. The mitochondria in your cells are something that came from your mother's lineage. That's why I said you like your grandmother, not your grandfather. And those are basically the, the power plant, the wiring diagram for your cells. But they also have a compatibility with your nuclear DNA, uh, which is basically the blueprint for the physical parts of your body. And we're finding in some of the newer research that sometimes you have a wiring diagram from your mom and you have a, a physical building plant from your both of your parents, and the match isn't always uh, a great match. And when that happens, uh, uh, feeding the bacteria in your gut and taking care of the mitochondria 
seems to be very, very important. So you're, you're more likely to have stress mitochondria. So if you manage the gut bacteria, which in turn talk to and feed the bacteria that are your power plant, you end up with a much higher level of performance. And so I couldn't tell you right now whether it's causative because of gut bacteria, but I'm pretty sure based on three different papers that this has to do with crosstalk between the mitochondrial genome and the nuclear genome, uh, which is so fascinating. And since all of us are mutts <laughs> right now, if you do your 23andMe uh, genetic survey, none of us is you know one lineage 100%. We all have uh, some someone going back. I found out sometime in the 1700s, I probably have a 100% Native American ancestor. There was talk in my family of this, but we didn't know. But it's it's there in the data, right? So that kind of uh, that kind of knowledge that you might have a mismatch there, and you want to experiment to see what works. But I would look at what your grandmothers ate, where did they come from, and you may find great wisdom there. But regardless, eat the way that you describe, eat the way that I describe, which is vegetable centric with quality fats. But I can tell you, if your people ate lots of nightshade vegetables and legumes, you might tolerate those a lot better than someone of a northern European ancestry will, right? And knowing that and using that to guide you on the, the foods that might be more compatible with you is very cutting edge. And that's one of the, the 46 laws in the book. So this is, like I said, it's not a nutritional book, but the idea that your food template might be different from your spouse's or your kids or your friends, and it's okay. Like there is no perfect diet for every human being, but there are basic rules for all of us. Well, and even to take it further, we recognize that, uh, you know, this ability that we have to connect to the prefrontal cortex uh, is really a very human ability and allows us uh, the opportunity to, you know, to carry out executive function, to carry out purposeful activity based upon uh, our memory and based upon projecting what we feel the outcome will be, what the consequences, both positive and negative, may be. And this connection from our more primitive uh, brain centers, uh, for example, the amygdala, to the prefrontal cortex through uh, something called the anterior cingulate, this connection is actually threatened or enhanced directly in relation to our compatibility to the foods that we choose. In other yeah. words, when we're eating foods that are in line and are working with our gut bacteria and helping to reduce inflammation, we're actually cultivating the ability for us to uh, utilize this gift, this prefrontal cortex. When there is, as you mentioned, this conflict between our pedigree and the foods that we're choosing to consume, it amplifies inflammation. Inflammation is specifically threatening to that connection and leads to us acting more impulsively and less able to utilize the rest of our brains in terms of you know, the behaviors that we, uh, we engage in. And, you know, we see these days, if you look around, a lot more impulsivity and narcissism as opposed to empathy and planning for the future. I mean, you know, case in point, some of the decisions, with all due respect, that are being made with reference to climate change. Climate mm -hmm. change is something that we should be thinking about and conversing about in terms of our decisions today being manifested tomorrow. So. You know, I, I think that your points are, are really, um, you know, they're very spot on in terms of this compatibility. But I'm, I'm glad that you did mention broad strokes because isn't it difficult to try to exactly figure out what Dave Asprey should be eating 
based upon what? I mean, you know, you're huge into laboratory uh, studies, analyses, biohacking yourself. What have you done to, to really be much more specific about your choices in foods? One of the things that's made a difference for me is I looked at the Viome lab test. That's V-I-O-M-E. And I actually became an advisor to the company because I was so fascinated uh, with what they do. They look at every species of bacteria, fungus, phage, and virus in the gut to see specifically what's there, but also what they're producing. And based on that, um, I learned, for instance, on the diet recommendations uh, that I made in my first big book, uh, you eat lots and lots of vegetables. When I'm traveling, it doesn't matter how much you're willing to spend at a restaurant. Try and get a plate of vegetables. They'll bring you three pieces of asparagus that are probably burned and covered with some sort of weird sauce. You're like, okay, guys, I just wanted like 60 spears of asparagus. And it, it does not compute. So I wasn't getting enough dietary fiber when I traveled because of that. So I was able to see the results in my gut bacteria from that and say, okay, so what am I going to do in order uh, to modify this? So that means focusing more on salads. Uh, that means uh, looking at prebiotic supplements. And I know that you've done some work on prebiotic supplements uh, for this specific reason, uh, because uh, when you're on the road, it's hard to do. And I put prebiotics in, you know, in the bars I make, uh, but I still wasn't getting enough. So how do you be on a high fat, high vegetable diet when sometimes you can't buy vegetables? And also, there are many kinds of vegetables, the nightshade family in particular, that are kryptonite for my family. They cause autoimmunity. It, it's that way for my parents. It's that way for my son. It's that way for me. And uh, so for me, I, I go to a restaurant and half the stuff on the menu, it's not compatible with my system, even though it's good food. Well, uh, not everybody can do uh, you know, these high-end kind of uh, tests. Yeah. There's been some discussion uh, over the years uh, with reference to uh, choosing to eat a certain way based upon your blood type, for example. And uh, I think, you know, that, that's certainly been challenged, but I think just that whole notion gets back to the, the idea of sort of eating as your pedigree, uh, which blood, you know, blood type certainly is a reflection of that, but eating like your ancestors ate. And, and, and to get back to even less specific, uh, but the more broad strokes, I think there is some wisdom uh, in the underlying principles of the so-called paleo movement where we try to oh, yeah. emulate that diet to which our ancestors were exposed that really ultimately helped shape both their genomes as well as their microbiomes. So, um, you know, the big shift happened 10 to 14,000 years ago when suddenly, suddenly, yesterday, there was a blink and our diets dramatically changed with the advent of agriculture, which you know, has been credited with allowing the arts and the development of a democracy and all these wonderful attributes. But the reality is, this is fundamentally a diet that is absolutely at odds with how humans have eaten for two million years. So we <laughs> ate one way for 99.5% of our time on this planet. And suddenly, you know, the tide has turned in terms of what how we're responding or interacting with our genome and certainly our microbiome as well. But let's move through. Um, one of the things that you've always been interested in uh, is being as smart as you can. And obviously in talking to you today, it's working. Uh, but you, that, that, that was sort of, I think, a theme throughout many of your interviews is, is hacking yourself to really enhance brain function. So what, did, what have you learned? 
one of the big three things that people who were, were performing well really worked on was how to be smarter. And this manifested in, in different ways. Uh, but one of the, the big ways uh, was uh, not just food, but they're doing things, whether it's brain training exercises. And there's actually a law about that that shows fluid intelligence can be trained and actually talk about specific software, the software I use to raise my IQ by 12, by 12 points. And I have uh, another friend of ours, uh, Dr. Uh, Amen. Uh, on video saying, yeah, if, if you're you're dealing with toxins, you can lose 15 IQ points right from that. So when I talk about the fact I've used techniques to raise my IQ by at least 20 points, I, I talk about the test that gave me 12 points. And there's a bunch of other things, including just making sure your gut works well, that can make your brain work at its highest level. And And if people have a hard time with this, Stay up for two days, have a few beers, and take an IQ test and see how you do. I'm pretty sure your IQ will be substantially lower on that test than if you got a good night's sleep, ate a good meal, and had a cup of coffee and took a test, right? So we know that our daily performance varies, but what if it varies a little bit more over time? It, it turns out it does. And also, one of the, the, big, uh, the big names in the last 10 years to talk about smart drugs, I actually went on Nightline talking about a very potent nootropic prescription drug called modafinil. And I was the only one willing to not wear a, a paper bag over my head. I said, yes, I took this with a doctor's prescription in, in, uh, in business school. And I would not have had the career I've had. My meditation practice quantifiably improves when I take this stuff. I did it every day for eight years. But I got to the point where it doesn't really do that much for me anymore. Where my brain just works. It works so well that I can take this, they call it the limitless drug. Uh, and hmm. I, I get a little kick from it if I was off, but if I'm on, I'm on, and it, it's almost, it almost doesn't do much. But I talk about the research on this well, drug well, and you. many other smart drugs. That's me. With some people, it doesn't work. Other people, it works really well. And my recommendation there is don't start with that stuff, but know that it exists. And if you are completely wrecked and your brain's not working and you need to get the job interview done. You must pass the final exam. Uh, you, you're going to do something very important. Maybe this you should know this exists. And what are the plant compounds, the polyphenols, the very helpful things that Mother Nature has always made that can improve cognitive function? So I go through those in the book. And obviously, coffee and caffeine are very well studied as cognitive enhancers. There's talk about Alzheimer's. The other one, though, that's controversial, but I, I felt I had to write about it. I interviewed uh, Dr. Nicotine, I like to call him, from Vanderbilt University. 30 years of research looking at the effect of oral nicotine, not smoking, not tobacco. Those are bad. Tobacco is shown to be bad for you on many different levels. But the effect of oral nicotine on Alzheimer's disease. And it turns out for at least one and probably more than one type of Alzheimer's and for certain types of brains, small doses of oral nicotine are potent performance enhancers that have all sorts of beneficial effects. But if you take a lot of it or you start smoking and chewing and vaping and all those things, it's going to do very bad things for you. And much like the discussion around LSD and microdosing and things like that, the dose really matters versus what it does. And it appears with nicotine that a, a small dose on an occasional basis is probably beneficial, at least according to some people. So I talk about that. And what are the tool sets you have to dial up your cognitive function in a supportive biological way and things that might have a cost but have really potent benefits when you need them so that you can say, all right, is being smarter where I want to focus or should I focus more on the set of laws and principles around being happier? 
because the people who have their big goals, the people who do the big things, they generally have figured out how to be happy much of the time because happy people have a lot less drag in their life. They can hit their mission. They know how to be smarter, whether it's because they slept better and there's a whole law on sleep and quality of sleep and timing of sleep, or they, they suddenly know how to be faster. Like they, they got there first, right? And so they're doing something. And if you look at those big priorities and you dial in, you say, okay, I'm going to thumb through game changers. I'm going to look at the, you know, the exercises that are at the back of each law and say, all right, is this where I should focus? And law number one is such a simple law, but it's the one that I missed for so long in my own life. Um, and it's simply use the power of no. Uh, because I like to help people. It makes me happy to help people. I tend to say yes. I say, hey, Dave, will you do this? But I don't go through the process of saying, if I do that, what am I not going to do that might have helped even more people or had a bigger impact? Or if I say yes to that, am I going to spend the quality time that I've decided to spend uh, playing with my kids or being with my wife or uh, doing uh, a charitable service or whatever else is my priority? So teaching people, the first rule is, hey, what are you going to say no to so that you can say yes to one of the laws in this book and to have a conscious practice of saying no more and saving your energy for your mission? Because Everything that I, I've learned in my whole life is that every action you take, whether it's a tiny action or a big action, has a return on investment for you. It either gives you more energy, it kind of does nothing to your energy, or it takes energy away. And by saying no to the things that take away your energy, <laughs> usually saying no to the things that are kind of neutral and saying yes to the things that give you more than they, they cost – Everything else in the book becomes easy to do just from that one understanding. And this is one of those things that successful people, not just successful, but unusually successful, impactful, happy people have figured out is, you know, I, I got to say no, even though I want to do it. And they don't feel the pain of saying no the way most of us do because they've reframed it. Well, saying no is, is very positive then because they know they're going to translate that no into something that's, that's actually beneficial, not just for themselves, but in the long run, others as well. You mentioned sleep. And, you know, it's so clear to me that of all of our lifestyle choices, making the choice to get restorative sleep doesn't seem to yet be really on the radar. You know, Arianna Huffington wrote a book about it and uh, people are, others have written books lately about it. And, and yet um, people seem to not uh, really value sleep and relegate sleep to uh, the default of, you know, to, to what you end up getting based upon accomplishing all of your tasks, when in reality, you'll be far more efficient in accomplishing those tasks if you get restorative sleep. So what did you learn in all of these interviews or whichever ones touched upon this that you can share with us about sleep? Well, I came from a, a mindset where sleep was a necessary evil. And I've been an entrepreneur for most of my adult life. And I'm like, oh, but there's so many interesting things I could learn, so many things I could do. Like, like why do I have to you know, turn the lights off? This, this sucks. And I still have that to a certain point. But now I, I look at that time as inviolable time where I'm going to do everything necessary to get the highest return on the time I spend to sleep. And now it becomes an investment instead of a cost. And I have, I mean, some of the original posts that you'll see on the internet about hacking your sleep, those exact words were, were something you would never say eight years ago when I started writing. And, and you see things about collagen protein before sleep. I, I, I wrote that post and it's all over the internet uh, and, and things like that. Uh, 
So I talk about a few of the supplements that help sleep, and I talk about what lighting does. If you want to double your sleep efficiency, don't stare at bright screens and have your LED and fluorescent lights on for a couple hours before bed. But how do you make that really work? And I wanted to put something in here that isn't in any of the blogs that you or I have written. And one of the new pieces of research that's in the book about sleep quality is around the angle of your bed. And it turns out if you raise the height of your bed by about six inches, there's really intriguing research about how it changes blood flow in the body and could potentially reduce Alzheimer's disease and have a bunch of other circulatory benefits. So this is something that I've been doing for years. Uh, and uh, when, I first saw, when I first heard about this and to be able to talk about that with the science behind it and say, hey, this is something worth trying. Um, that's a, a big finding. And it's easy enough to put a couple blocks under the head of your bed for a month or two and see if anything changes. Like it's one of those low cost things you do at one time. And if you get a return every night, even 5% better sleep, it's free. Like, like you just had to find a brick. <laughs> uh, so I, I really appreciate that. Um, the other one that I think really came out of this is the power of when you go to sleep. I, when I was looking to recover from adrenal fatigue uh, years ago, I said, all right, I'm going to go to bed by 10 o'clock every night. I'm going to be religious about this. I, I'm going to do all these things. I, for a while, I woke up at 5 a.m. for two years to, because, hey, everyone knows the best things happen in the morning. I'll get more mornings. But it turns out that there's a genetic variance in people. And I am not a morning person, but I used to think it was a moral failing because we all know morning people are the best people. Right. So I kind of rewrote my mental arithmetic to say the early bird works for the late bird. Yeah, I just like to say that. But it, it's not – there is no moral superiority. And part of the law, uh, which, which is – I'm just thinking of what is the number of that law. It's law 20. High-quality sleep is better than, than most or better than more sleep. And what, what you find out there is – if your natural thing is to go to bed an hour or two later than everyone else, as long as you control your lighting and you're getting enough sleep, you'll probably achieve your mission better if you do that. But when you wake up, you still have to do the things successful people do in the morning. So it's okay to be a 5 a.m. or a 7 or an 8 a.m. riser, but do it based on your own circadian rhythm. And don't beat yourself up because you have to wake up really early. And when you look specifically at teenagers and young adults, my God, biology wants them to sleep in a little bit and making them start school at 7 a.m. is torture. There's no other word for it. It is it's unconscionable to set our children's brains up. Beyond with that, that kind of sleep. research shows if you, if you give them that extra hour of sleep, uh, their uh, performance in school improves, their drug use decreases, teen pregnancy decreases, and their <laughs> automobile accident rate goes down. I mean, how could you, just by letting them sleep in? So you're right. You know, we instill upon people the notion, again, the early bird gets the worm, you got to get up. Why are you sleeping your life away? We were all told that growing up, and you're right. Uh, you know, we need more sleep, and not everybody is the same. Let me get back to raising the head of your bed a little bit. I mean, that that is a, um, it's a, a wonderful extrapolation from the animal research, which demonstrated uh, that rodents that were required to sleep with elevation of their heads had much better activity of their glymphatic system. In other words, the ability of the brain to take out the garbage during the night and right. enhancing functionality. So uh, there is uh, you know, some really good science behind that. And I think we're gonna hear more and more about that. Um, 
beyond that, uh, I want to get back to just a couple thoughts in terms of enhancement of brain function. I mean, here I am mm -hmm. talking to uh, the bulletproof guy, and yeah, but, but you're a real uh, you know, neurologist in, in, in terms of diet. <laughs> what are the the newest ideas that you can share with us that relates to uh, brain function and even enhanced functionality as it relates to uh, the presence of ketones or being on a full-out ketogenic program? There's even more evidence uh, since your last book, since my last book, Headstrong, about ketones and cognitive function. And what I am finding, and a lot of the, the newest research is finding, is that when people go on a ketogenic diet, if they stay on the diet for long periods of time, the benefit goes down after a while because probably their gut bacteria start to change and they make more of these lipopolysaccharides that cross the gut in the presence of fat in the diet and then cause brain inflammation. So the ketones help the brain, but then the toxins that come from a disrupted gut biome don't. So the idea of having some ketones present all the time, and I do that with MCT oil things or brain octane, um, the, one, uh, the one that I make, and I know that you've got a, an MCT oil that's that's very pure as well. Um, so the idea of these MCT oils um, that can go in and give you some ketones, even if you had some rice or you, you went to 50 grams of carbs today instead of 15 grams of carbs, you're not a bad person if you eat some carbs, especially if you're a woman, you probably need some carbs. And even if you're a guy. So uh, for me, having those present, that is a new type of low-grade background ketones that can be life-changing for people. And of course, it's a core ingredient in Bulletproof Coffee um, because uh, it, it has changed my life that much. So that's part of it. But the other one is the amazing effect of these polyphenols and these colored compounds in plants, in spices and herbs, in coffee, tea, chocolate, and yeah, wine, but wine is not a brain food. I wish it was. It's unfortunately, alcohol is not good for your brain, even at low doses. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, but... Those colored compounds, when you get enough of them, including some unusual ones, uh, there's one in the book I talk about called apigenin, uh, which is something that I use in, in the, the smart mode formula um, that I put together. And this is one that's shown to have really good effects on cognitive function. You just have to get enough of it. And David, I know that you've worked on cognitive enhancing supplements for uh, you know a very long time. Uh, and that you're aware of the role of polyphenols, you use them in your things. But most people don't look at, oh, this colored food or this spice or this rosemary has cognitive enhancing effects if you get enough of it. If you pay attention to this, Mother Nature has just scattered cognitive enhancing substances around. And our job as people who want to do more in our lives is to figure out how do I get enough of that in my diet? And if not, how do I get enough of it in a supplement? So I, I feel really good about increasing the amount of polyphenols that I get, uh, including with supplements, because even though I grow my own food on the garden that you've seen here, and I do my, my very best, I'm on airplanes a lot. And I know I'm probably not going to do as well as I could. So I don't mind, quote, cheating by helping myself get concentrated compounds that are shown in studies to improve cognitive function. You know, make yourself, uh, you know, aware of this information and, and make these things available to you. I mean, why not? I mean, we're all in situations where we don't have total control over uh, what is available to us. I mean, as you know, we spend a lot of time on a boat and uh, yeah. by all means, you know, our, uh, we are limited at times to colorful vegetables. So that having supplements available to us, it really makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I've seen your, I've seen your boat. You definitely have. <laughs> You've the, been on the, it, actually. The, the, the full David Pearl Butter supplement line there, because you use them, right? <laughs> and 
And yeah, you're right. it only makes sense, right? <laughs> let me let me shift gears because you had some interesting commentary uh, in the book on what are called you called weasel words. And I, I think it's, it was cute, but it was also, I think, pretty instructive in terms of how languaging informs uh, our decision making and informs our perception as well. So walk us through what you mean by weasel words, words and then just give me some examples because I think it was really interesting. Oh, thank you. This has been one of the big things that came out of uh, doing personal development with electrodes on my head. I, I started a, a small neuroscience executive performance function thing in Seattle called 40 Years of Zen, and I've had the great fortune to spend four months of my life with electrodes on my head doing deep meditation work to kind of figure out when am I lying to myself, when am I not? And one of the things that comes out of, of that kind of work is that pretty much any time you say the word need, unless you're going to die without it, it's probably a lie. And the problem is that when you lie to yourself, your body will believe it. And if you say, I need to go to the store, what you've done is you've just told yourself that if you don't go to the store, you're going to die. And suddenly you trigger fear and you trigger the amygdala response. And it's totally not so. What if you went to Instacart? What if you asked someone to go to the store for you? What if you fasted? Right? You didn't need to. You wanted to go to the store. You were choosing to go to the store. You get to go to the store because you're lucky enough to have enough money to buy something. All of those are equally valid stories. So when you use the word need, it's almost a lie. And even if you say something like, I need to breathe or I'll die, I'm sorry. Have you seen the research about this new foam-based IV oxygen they can give you intravenously so you don't have to breathe? It's probably expensive and not very practical. Let's just keep breathing. But here's the deal. If you don't consider that there are other alternatives because you told yourself you need to do something, you have actually prevented yourself from seeing the set of solutions to the problem in front of you. And it, it costs you terribly and it's invisible. So in, in our house, we don't use the word need. My kids will tell me if I do it. And every now and then it sneaks through qualified, but even then it's always alive. Your kids hold your feet to the fire. I've watched <laughs> it happen. And, uh, you know, I recall a, a car trip. Uh, let's talk about it with your son. Yeah. And uh, you asked him, or maybe I did, I don't remember, if he could have any wish. Remember that moment? Yeah. And then when he did wish for what he wished for, we said, okay, now what are you going to do with all that money, et cetera? And, um, but I've, I've seen them really, and your daughter especially, dad, you know, uh, uh, we shouldn't talk that way. And they're, they're so good. You, you got great children. You got wonderful oh, children. Th thank you. I, I like to think that weasel words uh, play a role in that. Oh, yeah. So, some... uh, you know, the other thing I just, I'll mention is, uh, in talking to Dave Asprey, it's not like you just write these books, but you're walking the talk. Like me, we're doing the best we can. We're not perfect, but it's what we've learned and we want to share it. So um, you talked about um, this notion of defeating what you call decision fatigue. And I think the example you used was how Steve Jobs just wore the dark turtleneck and a story and didn't have to labor over that. Uh, Zuckerberg as well just has a bunch of t-shirts and uh, we really do sort of get hung up on these the minutia of our day-to-day -day decision making. So how do we offload that and why is it important? I was just on the Dr. Oz show 
And he asked one of his audience members to write down the number of decisions she made every day. And she lost track after, I want to say, more than a thousand decisions. And even you get out of bed. Should I snooze the alarm? Should I not snooze the alarm? Oh, I'm going to brush my teeth. What order should I do all this stuff in? Oh, what do I wear? Uh, What do I have for breakfast? And so becoming aware of the fact that you actually only have so many decisions each day. And if you set your life up so you make a bunch of meaningless decisions that don't impact the quality of your life, your mission, or anything else, but you just kind of did them, uh, that it is an amazing drain on your performance. So a lot of the game changers that I interviewed, they uh, they had found ways around this where they just built effective habits or they have a capsule wardrobe, it's called, where it's easier for men than women, but honestly, it's not that hard to buy clothes that usually match each other so you can grab two things out of the closet and know you're going to look good in the morning. Um, that actually really does remove things. I, I'm watching my daughter. She's 11. And every morning, oh, do I wear this? Do I wear that? And she's not that uh, you know, image conscious at all, but she just kind of thinks about it a lot. And we, we carry that through into our adult lives. And you realize, okay, does it really matter today? And can I can I meet the the good level every single day without having to stress about it? Or can I have the same thing for breakfast or just not have breakfast? Can I simplify? And when you simplify and you save yourself 200 decisions every day, micro decisions, it frees up so much energy because then when you make the decision to go to the gym, uh, to meditate, uh, to do something that matters, you'll have enough horsepower left to make that decision. Uh, and for me, I could not do what I do. I mean, you know, because writing books is an enormous cognitive task. Running a company is a very substantial task. Being a parent of young children is a big task. And having a podcast like we're doing right now, also, it it takes a lot of focus to interview someone effectively, right? So to keep your energy up and to be able to do these things, I I can tell you, I really don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow. But I know I have a system that's managing it for me. Uh, So just to encourage people to say, it's okay not to make every decision in your life. It's okay to say, I just don't want to decide that. I'm going to make it so I never have to think about that again. And when you do it, it's so freeing. And that freedom goes back into you. And that's the energy that you use to become a better human being. If you're eating the wrong stuff so you don't have enough energy, you're getting terrible sleep, (laughs) Uh, you've got inflammation going on, uh, you're stressed all the time, and then you're making a whole bunch more decisions than you need, it's no wonder you're tired at the end of the day. The people who have, have created new fields of psychiatry or new fields of medicine or earn Nobel Prizes, they're not doing that. Otherwise, they wouldn't do the big things. You, um, I, I want to close on, I think, something that's very important. We talked about earlier how undervalued sleep is. And, uh, you know, in fact, many of the things that you cover in the book are undervalued. Uh, the importance of connection, the importance of uh, socializing. Uh, but uh, what was really, uh, I found great pleasure in reading was your valuation uh, of nature connectedness. And, you know, we're hearing more and more about this uh, Shirin uh, Yoku forest bathing that has become very popular in Japan and is, in fact, associated with some quantifiable uh, medical uh, issue uh improvements health issues so um tell us if you will what you learned about the 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 real value for us in terms of making reconnections to nature and beyond that if you don't mind how do we make that happen for people who live in a city for example 
oh, I, these rules were so important. And it kind of surprised me that they came out because I, I live this. I live on a, an organic farm that's half wild forest. So I'm, I'm doing these kinds of things. And there's three rules in the book. It, it's laws 41 is make your environment less like a farm and more like a zoo. And uh, bathe in the forest instead of the tub is law 43. And allow your body to make its own sunscreen is, is law number 42. These are all nature-based laws that high-performance people actually do. And the value of being in a wild environment like that came through in several of the interviews I did where people are realizing that when you breathe microbes from being in a forest or being in a, a wild desert or a seascape, uh, that it changes your gut bacteria. It changes the biome in your eyes, on your skin, in your sinuses, in your ears. And that that diversity that you get from it can change the way your biology works. So regularly exposing yourself to these things makes a big difference. Even just having good quality houseplants in a city that help to clean the air can be uh, really, really helpful. Just seeing trees, even if you just go for a walk in Central Park, there is something that happens neurologically when you're exposed to three dimensions with, with green. In fact, we see uh, the color green, more shades of green than any other color because we evolved in a forest. It, it's built into us. And there's something deeply relaxing neurologically about it, which is part of forest bathing. And then there's the microbial elements of it. And who knows, there may be some magnetic or energetic or you know, who knows, tree fairies, if you want to talk to the shamans I've interviewed. Uh, there's something that's really important there and I call those out in these three laws because when you have a little bit more uh, wilderness in your life, uh, even if you live in a big city, it, it, it changes you as a, as a human being. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that research began with the revelation that recovery from surgery seemed to be uh, uh, enhanced in individuals whose post-op room had a window looking out on trees versus looking out on a wall. So, you know, interesting, the thought came to mind that, uh, which is where thoughts usually come to, uh, <laughs> that everything we've talked about in our time together today is really about uh, emulating the environments of our ancestors, uh, sleeping when the sun goes down, uh, eating food that seems to be uh, appropriate for our microbiomes and our genomes, reconnecting with the, the signaling mechanisms of nature that are all around us, reconnecting with other people, with uh, society, with people uh, interacting, in other words, powerfully leveraging the notion of reconnection, and also simplification. So these are all things, I think, that characterize uh, what our Paleolithic ancestors must have experienced. I mean, I'm not making a big picture for the paleo movement per se, but I think it's valid to consider the fact that in any real sense, the human genome has not really changed in about 70,000 years. And yet, suddenly, those epigenetic influences over which we have a great deal of control that you call attention to in your book, uh, really have changed quite dramatically beginning, uh, you know, 12, 14,000 years ago, and certainly accelerated by, by modern lifestyle. So it does appear to be that there's this discordance between uh, that which we are are exposing ourselves to and the types of uh, information that our ancestors would have received. You're spot on. End of the day, like all things that are live, we are wired to not get eaten right now by things that are scary, to eat everything in case there's a famine, and then to make sure we reproduce with whatever energy we have left. And if you can do those three things as a bacteria or as a human, you know there'll be another generation. 
And, and so those are the things that are there. And there's so much wiggle room around those things where you can remove the fear of things that aren't actually tigers and you have more energy. You can eat so that you're not starving and thinking about food all the time. You have more energy. You can have love and community in your life. You have more energy. And what's left after we do those three things, that's what we have to play with to, to change our own game, to improve not just ourselves, which, which is kind of selfish, but to improve our ability to execute on the reason we're here. And part of it, you might need to figure that out, but I, I can promise you that if you haven't addressed those first three things, you will not have the energy it takes to figure out why you're here and then go do it. And that's why this really matters. But you, you talk about uh, how ultimately those three things need to be in place ultimately for us to be able to have a really good shot at pursuing happiness. I, I believe so. And you can turn happiness on with just a little bit of energy. And the, the more you can turn on happy, the less you deal with fear. And the less you deal with fear, the easier it all becomes. So you turn down that fear thing just a little bit, and then you address the dietary stuff, which is frankly so easy compared to figuring out why you feel uncomfortable in front of a stage or why you have a fear of heights. You can do that kind of work. It's just hard. But it's a heck of a lot easier if you're not hungry the whole time. So like, let's deal with food so we can st stop hangry, stop hypoglybitchy, and we get those right. And then we start dealing with fear. We start feeling dealing with love. And after that, there is a sense of mission for all of us that's there. And the people I interviewed, so I could learn from them in, in my own life, in my own company, in my own family life, to boil that down for me was a learning exercise so I could crystallize that knowledge in my own brain, in my own life, and by ordering it and working with a statistician to see what, what do they all agree on? What did a few people say that stood out? And to put that down in writing, it was as much a learning exercise for me to move forward as a human being as it was to share something where 500 hours of podcast condensed into a four-hour read is, is a good mm -hmm. ROI. <laughs> well, uh, as always, I... Uh... I sure enjoy our time together, and I want you to know that uh, whether it's in this venue or you know face to face, I just I really enjoy it. I honor the work that you're doing. I've often uh, described you as the leading citizen scientist of our day, so uh, you Thank need you. to know that's going on behind your back. Love wow. the book, and I was honored to get an advanced copy. I think it's great, and uh, I look and forward to seeing it. you hopefully this summer again. <laughs> I I would be sad if we couldn't connect. I'll be here on Vancouver Island waiting for your beautiful boat to come by and uh, we'll get spend some quality time together. Sounds great, Dave. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Well, as always, uh, you know, Dave's been on the program before. What an interesting interview. Uh, what a place he is to have such a great opportunity to interview uh, so many thought leaders around the world in so many uh, disciplines and now has compiled his takeaways uh, from these interviews in his new book, which is here, Game Changers uh, by Dave Asprey. Hope you enjoyed the program today. I think you will very much enjoy this very, very exciting book. A lot of great insight and a lot of uh, applicable information. Thanks for joining me. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Bye for now.